This is the East Traumacast. The East Online Education Committee would like to say thank you to Hemanetics for their generous, unrestricted educational grant to support the Traumacast. Good afternoon, everyone, and welcome to the latest episode of the East Traumacast. I'm Red Hoffman, and I'll be your moderator today. I'll be joined today by my co-moderator, Carrie Valdez. Hi, Carrie. Hi, everyone. It's Tuesday, April 14th, and today we are bringing you the fourth episode focused on the management of surgical patients during the COVID-19 pandemic. This is an update from the front line in New York City with Matt Martin and special guests. Just a few reminders. One, this is not meant to be a comprehensive review. Two, information continues to change on a daily basis as we learn more about this disease. And so we encourage you to continue to do your own research and use our discussion as a guide. Three, each of our comments are our own, and none of us are speaking on behalf of our hospitals and institutions. And lastly, I just want to offer our immense gratitude to our guests today, all of whom who took time out of their very busy clinical practices to share the most up-to-date information available with us and our listeners. So we'll get started with each of our guests introducing themselves and letting us know where they are from. Eddie, let's get started with you. Hi, I'm Eddie Chow, uh, trauma attending surgical critical care at Jacoby Hospital uh, in the Bronx, New York. And Haj? This is Srinivas Haj Reddy. I'm the pediatric trauma medical director at Jacoby Medical Center. And then a very familiar voice, Matt. Yeah, this is Matt Martin, usually in San Diego. Uh, For the past week, I've been the COVID ICU intern at Jacoby. (laughs) Thanks, Matt. So Matt, Haj, and Eddie, Given all the new information that we continue to learn about COVID-19, we thought it would be best to structure this episode just like we run rounds in the ICU. So we'll just go system by system, starting with neuro. I'll ask some questions, but I'd also like to give you all the opportunity to share what you've learned so that others can benefit from your experiences over the past several weeks. So as we do in the ICU, let's get started with neuro. My first question for you guys what are you finding is working or not working for pain control and for sedation for your COVID patients? So um, the first thing we noticed, we got our first COVID patient maybe about three weeks back now. And this was uh, the column before the storm, we, what we like to call it. And uh, we had a game plan going in with propofol and fentanyl or versed and fentanyl, whichever uh, the preference of the team was at the time. And what we started noticing right away was these patients were chewing through high-dose propofol, 15, 20 milligrams an hour, Versed, and fentanyl. None of those things seemed to touch them at all. And that was our, our first, first week's lesson about how non-responsive they were to these. They were bucking through it, hating the ventilator, dropping their blood pressures. It was a bit of a nightmare. Uh, since then, we've tweaked our, our tactics. We've gone more with ketamine as an infusion using uh, 0.1 to 0.5 milligrams per kilo as, uh, as our titration, more anesthesia-level doses. Uh, we've gone to Ativan pushes, and uh, we, we're loving our Seroquel as long as the, the QTC is not horrible uh, with the Plaquenil and whatever else QT prolonging medications they might be on. We did know that we did have to keep these patients fairly well sedated because of the risk of self-extubation. It takes a long time to get back into the room fully gowned and geared if you need to reintubate them. So for that reason, we were going with higher doses up front. 
with this regimen of these other um, medicines, we've got this a little bit better titrated with less of the drips. And in our uh, email exchange prior to the show, uh, one of you, I think Matt had mentioned COVID brain, and, and that was a phrase I had not heard yet. Can you kind of touch on what COVID brain is? Well, we would, that was more in the outpatient setting, but it was certain patients that we've noticed that had the infection were certainly not thinking and, and speaking in a rational form, and we thought we attributed that to their infection. Uh, I don't know if it's the true clinical diagnosis, but it's certainly something that we've seen uh, in many outpatient settings. At least from what I've seen, it's almost just like they're, they're slowed down, they're you know a little confused, or even if they're with it, it it'll take them a few seconds to respond to a question and, and have to think about it which you know is interesting because there's so much we don't know about this disease i've read that a lot of these meds opioid sedatives some paralytics are in short supply is this true in your hospital i would say there are certain limitations because we did switch to our regimen that we did uh, we have not faced a shortage in what our needs are but i think throughout the building and throughout the institution there probably are certain issues with certain medications, but we have not faced that with our regimen. And with all these stand-up ICUs we created, we would do, we would say something like propofol in this unit, Versed in that unit, Ativan in the next unit to try to limit everybody using the same sedatives and, uh, and opioids all at the same time. One thing also we have avoided is paralytics. So we have not been in favor of paralytics on the surgical sides uh, for our patients, except maybe just to get them settled down when we first get them. But after that, we really are staying away from paralytics. They're using it much more extensively in the medical ICU, and, and that is one agent that they're running short of, and at least I think they're still out of cisatricurium, uh, and so having to use ROC and VEC, which, which isn't ideal for the patients who are in multi-organ failure. But like they mentioned, you, you got to kind of do crop rotation of, of these drugs because you'll run low on one, and you got to have a backup. I think, I think the other thing that's nice is using your throwing in some oral agents, like scheduled oral Ativan if you can. Uh, and that also helped preserve your IV ones for the patients that really need continuous infusions. One thing that I like to also mention is uh, we, we have successfully gotten four to extubation, which is, uh, I guess, a pretty good number as far as this disease is concerned. And uh, those four just before extubation were loving Presidex. Uh, obviously, Presidex is extremely expensive and shouldn't be, uh, should be used sparingly, but using that as a bridge to extubation seemed to have a good effect. Yeah, very good effect. I agree with that. Very nice. I'm wondering, when you prone someone, do they have to be paralyzed, or can you get away with not paralyzing them? Yeah, we are not paralyzing the proning patients. We do have to sedate them a little bit deeper, just because it is obviously uncomfortable for them, but not too much change in their sedation requirements, prone or supine. Carrie, any more questions on the neuro front? No, I was just going to chime in and say we do proning here pretty aggressively. We don't have COVID on our surgical ward yet, but for other causes of ARDS, and, and I find it need just a little bit more sedation, but we don't paralyze them either. And I'd say probably the one other thing that I guess would fall under the neuro is, you know, you've got these patients, they're heavily sedated. A lot of times you're not able to do sedation holidays because they're on high level vent sport, aggressively anticoagulating them. And so, you know, you'll have a good number of patients where you're questioning their neural status. And even when you give them station holiday, they might not wake up. And so you kind of have to have a strategy in mind of how you're going to handle that, you know, because usually we would just say get a CT, but CTs can take a long time. The patient may not be stable enough for a transport to CT, or you're going to do EEGs. But, but I think that's just something to have in mind in your ICU is, 
how are we going to approach that patient and, and are we able to do quick head CT, how we're going to do sedation holidays safely. I say we have a portable head CT that we use. Oh, Jealous. We're jealous. <laughs> <laughs> we did actually have to whisk someone down to CAT scan the other day because they had an unequal people exam. They hadn't been waking up. Fortunately, it was negative, but it is a challenge, and it was uh, quite an undertaking. We actually made two trips. The first time the patient desaturated, had to come back, and then we had to go back later on. That very first week, actually, I had one of the interns completely put on their full PPE, donned on, uh, standing right next to the room when we were doing our first sedation holiday, and, and saying that if they woke up and started reaching for their tube, that they're going to run in there and save them. But uh, that turned out to be obviously overkill. One last comment on, on neuro is that also we realize that these patients are going to require a good amount of vent support for a long period of time, several days, if not weeks. And so there was we moved away from the shorter acting agents for that reason as well. We didn't need to have them to just turn them off and have them wake up. It didn't make any sense. So that's another reason we moved to longer acting agents. Okay, we'll move now to respiratory, which will likely be the bulk of our discussion. So I'd like to get started with the management of hypoxemia pre-intubation. So Matt, you had mentioned on Twitter, I think one of your first posts when you got to New York, that we should consider tolerating SATs in the 80s in patients that are mentating. Can you talk a little bit more about this? Well, well I think the simplest answer goes back to, you know, examine your patient. And if the patient is clearly mentating, perfusing, delivering oxygen well, then trying to do anything else is really just chasing a number or some artificial endpoint. Uh, you know, that being said, if they're that low, they're, they're walking a fine line. So those patients probably should be, need to be in an ICU setting and closely watched because, you know, we've also seen the patients who don't get that closely watched and fall off a cliff and then you're innovating them during an arrest. And these patients, uh, at, at first, there was a lot of fear with the non-invasive ventilation with high flow nasal cannula about the aerosolization and the spread. When, when the surge really started, there was just obviously too many of them and they overwhelmed all of our machines. Uh, so a lot of them were just getting high dose oxygen by non-rebreather and face masks. And the other thing I found that was really helpful was people were self-proning. They were, they were told to flip over and prone in their beds for, I guess, two hours on, two hours off. And that seemed to have staved off the, the need for intubation. But we, as the process went on, we got less and less aggressive, I would say, with intubating people and trying to keep people on the the non-invasive techniques more uh, more frequently. Yeah, I think when we got our first wave of patients, all of those that were intubated were dying. And we were almost trying to think that intubation is almost a bad thing and we really do everything we can to avoid intubation, any method we could to try and to avoid that. But uh, obviously some of the patients do need to be intubated and it becomes very tricky, that fine line of not intubating them until they're about to crash, but getting them before they do crash. And maybe if you guys can just outline your your, what's your current approach to pre-innovation, you know, patients hypoxemic? So uh, it's just upgrading the oxygen delivery like we, like we normally would. The nasal cannula up to about six liters should deliver anywhere between 35 to 40% FiO2. Then uh, whatever level of face mask they need up to a non-rebreather. Like I mentioned, we're much more aggressive now with uh, high flow nasal cannula and, and, and BiPAP CPAP, and we'll put them in a negative pressure room for that for both of those higher level uh, oxygen delivery techniques. And like, like Matt said, we just watch them with their mental status, make sure they don't decompensate. We'll, we're accepting a lot, lot lower SATs, pHs than we're normally used to. So 
but we realized that, you know, if we put everybody on a ventilator, one, we're going to run out of ventilators, two, we're going to run out of space, we're going to run out of people to, to manage those people on those, that level of support. For the people who are on high flow, do the people taking care of them need to be wearing N95 masks? So there's been mixed messages about exactly what degree of PPE you need to be wearing. In my unit, uh, despite everybody's recommendations, you know, the people were saying that uh, if the patient's on a ventilator, just go in there with a regular surgical mask. I, I told all my nurses and my teams that I, I frankly don't care. Just wear your N95 and properly get donned on before you go into, into any of these rooms. That was more out of an abundance of precaution than actual any science. But, it would, you know, at that point, I was so fearful that anybody, any of my staff would get, be affected by this that I just thought, you know, an abundance of precaution was better than nothing. Yeah, but in answer to your question, a patient who is COVID positive on high flow oxygen, we would advise anyone going into that room to wear an N95. So that is our practice right now. And basically, I think anytime anyone enters any of the ICUs here, you should be in an N95. Yep. And, and we've certainly seen many patients who clearly have COVID clinically, negative test, negative test, and then you know next day it comes back positive. So the the test is nothing to rely on, especially one test. Yep. The false negative rate, you know, it's reported at 20%. And I think it's even higher than what's yeah, been I think reported. Yep. Yeah, yeah uh, Matt, I, I saw you compare the test to a random number generator. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, kind of like a tag. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So is the hypoxemia that you're seeing in a COVID patient different than the typical hypoxemia you would see in an ARDS patient? Yes, in, in, because the lungs are very different. The, they are hypoxic, but the lungs are very compliant. It's a very, very different pathophysiology. The lungs are very compliant. When they do get intubated and they're on positive pressure, you can see that. So they can exchange huge tidal volumes, but still not be able to oxygenate or ventilate properly, despite even getting tremendous tidal volume. Is this a, a vasoconstriction problem then, not necessarily the alveolar problem? We think it might be a microangiothrombosis is what we're suspecting. And that's why we're anticoagulating these patients more. We were just looking at a paper that they did some pretty interesting modeling and showed that COVID, it attacks hemoglobin and will degrade hemoglobin. And that's explaining part of the hypoxemia or this silent hypoxemia. And, and by their modeling also is explaining, we're seeing a lot of refractory elevated CO2s. No matter how much you increase their ventilation, you know, their CO2s are still saying 70 to 90. And at least this modeling by how it was attacking hemoglobin uh, and reducing its carrying capacity, they, they felt that was contributing, which again points out to we still know so little about what's actually causing these problems and what we should be doing. Uh, another big problem is these patients have crazy secretions from the get-go right in their middle of their inflammatory phase, right before they get intubated. Once they get intubated, they get these thin, pinkish foul-smelling secretions that it just overwhelms them. And no matter how much you, you pulmonary toilet them, and then kind of like through the week after they're intubated, their their lungs just get dry. You can't get any of it out, and it all becomes inspissated, thick, gigantic plugs that really clog up these ET tubes. We just uh, had to exchange an ET tube on a patient that was intubated for about 14 days, and you should see this ET tube. It was just coated with this thick, brown, pinky, gunk on the inside. It was just nasty. Well, and you couldn't even pass a catheter anymore, right? Yeah, it was yeah. just disgusting. Yep. Some of the burn surgeons are talking about using aerosolized heparin as a possible to help lyse some of this. We're not sure what would work. 
The problem is also every time you want to use these, you're running the risk of possibly aerosolizing more of the virus to the providers. So that's another reason I think these, these secretions uh, are accumulating. We're not doing normal respiratory therapy as we would as far as frequent, as frequent suctioning and as frequent inhaled medications. Yeah, and, and when your hospital and ICU is overwhelmed, you got to think about every one of those things you order, you know, needs a respiratory therapist to go in and deliver it. And you just, you know, you can't be doing Q4 NEBS when you've got 100 intubated COVID patients and they have to don and doff every time they go in and out of a room. So, you know, all these factors you don't think about normally in your ICU practice that you really have to consider is, you know, okay, what's the interval dosing going to be and who's going to need to deliver it? And, you know, how many other patients do they have? One other uh, important point on this is intubating these patients is very challenging. One thing is when you do prepare to intubate them, they are often profoundly hypoxic. The moment you sedate them and paralyze them, they go profoundly hypoxic. And the other thing is you're really not, you do not want to bag these patients when you're about to intubate them. That, that is when they're at their maximum viral load, you're really going to be pushing that virus throughout the area wherever they are. So you're really trying to not bag them, paralyze them, and quickly put that tube in before they arrest. Yeah, our ER staff, they have these hoods that you guys have seen on the, uh, the internet or whatever, where they're covering the patient's head and it's got armholes where the intubator can put their instruments through. I've seen tents, we've seen plastic tarps. I think all people are trying different things to uh, minimize the spread while they're intubating, but I agree with Hodge that we're not, we're not bagging aggressively, if, if any at all. Do you have a sense for the people who have progressed up to high-flow nasal cannula? Do you have like a cutoff in your head when you say, all right, we're going to just intubate this patient? Because some of what I've read is that these patients aren't necessarily looking to Kipnik or looking like they're struggling, but in actuality, they're about to tip over. In our experience, they've been pretty tachypnic, kind of waiting till their mental status goes a bit off and their CO2 starts climbing a little bit higher than usual. I think that's kind of, muscles. They start looking yeah. like they're failing, then we would, we would proceed. That's, that's where we're intervening. Yeah. Well, we've had people on BiPAP for several days, five, six, seven days, that are doing fine just with that, but they still require it, but they don't require intubation. They're just, that's, they just need some positive pressure. And I'm sure you all have seen some places, you know, there was obviously people pushing we shouldn't use high flow. We shouldn't use BiPAP or CPAP. You're going to aerosolize. They've actually done a couple of nice studies of looking at the aerosolization with high flow. And, and I think the bottom line is high flow doesn't give you any more aerosolization than a, a patient who's coughing vigorously. And if you put a, just put a mask over them while they're on high flow, again, no different than somebody coughing with a mask. So we've, or these guys have gone with use high flow and in fact max it out because another shortage here is high flow oxygen circuits and then CPAP or BiPAP is needed but I know some other places have implemented policies where they won't do either of those and they'll go right to innovation. Are you using any laboratory values to help guide you and I mean the first comment my favorite thing I was ever taught is one in doubt go see the patient but you know when you're looking at them and you're kind of debating are you using any of the the common laboratory values ldhd dimer ferritin etc to help guide when maybe it's time to intubate them no we're not actually because some people just have more of an inflammatory response but they're able to to tolerate it so we're really looking at their o2 saturation their entitled co2 and their work of breathing and how they look and if they're doing okay we'll just let we'll rock it until they're until things change so once these folks are intubated what 
vent settings are you um, using or what vent modes are you using? You're following more of an ARDSnet or are you going to APRV? We, we started with this theory of everybody should be on APRV because this was, you know, look like whiteout lungs, high secretions. We were just thinking recruitment, recruitment, recruitment. So we flipped their ID right away. And then we learned fairly quickly that the patients just didn't like it and it wasn't working. And we hurt some people, we think, with the vent because their tidal volumes were too big because the compliance was too normal. So over that first week into the probably second wave of patients we got, we were more 50-50 on some on low stretch, some on uh, just APRB at lower pressures. And I, I think we found a nice middle ground because we're out of vents pretty much. So like when they get intubated, they're coming in on these transport LTVs and those aren't, don't have APRV capabilities. And if they're doing fine on volume AC, their pressures aren't too high, their PEEP is reasonable, we'll just leave them on it if they look comfortable. Others, as they progress, they're, they're just not oxygenating, they need that flip of IDE and uh, we'll put them onto APRV, or if they're just asynchronous. But I'm finding both strategies working. The thing that I find the, the, the most telling by looking at these patients over a couple weeks now is that they de-recruit like, on the drop of a dime. They, they go from holding steady, holding steady, you know, P to Fs in the, in the mid hundreds. And then you do one tinker on the peep and go down just by two, or you go down on the P high on the APRV and just go down by two, everything else the same. And all of a sudden they bottom out and they just lose all their recruitment for no good reason. It's not like we did anything to the patient. Uh, now, three weeks in, I'm tending to leave their peep at the level and not tinkering with it, probably tinkering with that at the last and then same with the P high on the APRV. I'm leaving that to last after the FI2 has come down significantly, after we've stretched them out on the APRV for a while to allow maximum recruitment and not allow them to uh, take any steps back. Matt, anything you've seen since you've been there? I agree with that comment of tinkering too much with events. I would usually do like if I'm dropping and stretching someone on APRV, I maybe drop and stretch them three times in a day. And here, if you do that, like Eddie said, they will bottom out. So it's kind of one major vent move, max two a day, very slow. You give them a good eight to 12 hours to see the ultimate effect of that. And then how are you all deciding when to prone these patients? What we've done with that, we've kind of followed a model of, of if their PDF ratio is hanging around less than 150, even probably less than 100, because 150 is a lot of our patients, but certainly less than 100 for about a day, day and a half, and we're unable to, despite all our vent maneuvers, unable to get that better, uh, then we will prone them. And if we do prone them, we're proning them uh, 16 hours prone, eight hours uh, supine with just sheets and pillows, not with the rotoprone bed. And that so far has been our technique. And then any role for inhaled nitric oxide in these patients? We've really been using it probably too late at this point because we only have two nitric machines in the hospital normally designated to our NICU. We, I wish we had more of them because now that we've tried really as rescue salvage right at the end, those two patients both died. I would say that there is a role, probably a limited role, just to get their oxygen levels up a touch. And it's, it's usually not sustained because at that point, the, the virus has overwhelmed them. Yeah, and the other thing about proning, you know, that these guys have done is there's a proning team, uh, and and there's a night person who runs a team that runs vent rounds, and and so they'll go and do all the proning. So you know, the primary ICU team can can round and do all the stuff they have to do, which yeah, I think a, is a great approach. Yeah, it's about eight members. Uh, one. 
person at the head, one respiratory therapist managing the airway, and then three three uh, providers on each side to help with the uh, the flip. The only two things that we have done uh, beyond uh, what we've discussed so far is we have tried TPA, uh, systemic thrombolysis, for one patient uh, three times on the same patient. We had some success with that, but that patient also eventually died. Again, we did it very late, so we're not sure. Maybe it's a therapy we should be thinking about earlier. And the other thing, the other thing that we did, as you know, is one patient we had put, it was a nurse, we had put her on ECMO and transferred her to uh, ECMO's uh, hospital where she was uh, able to recover and is now extubated off the ECMO. And then as far as vent liberation, let's talk about that a little bit. Do you have a sense of what your average length of intubation is for these COVID patients thus far? Uh, we've had four successful extubations ranging from the shortest was about six days and the longest was about 14 days on the ventilator. I think all four of them, right? We extracted all four to straight to CPAP uh, or one to BiPAP, three to CPAP. And that so far has worked out well for us. None of them have required reintubation. Typically when we have patients intubated right around a five to seven or so, we start talking about doing a tracheostomy. What are your thoughts on that? Are the ET tubes that we use right now still as high of risk for any tracheal stenosis, or, or is that old data? Well, it's funny you mentioned that, because we have a debate about this this morning. <laughs> Every day. We're three weeks in, and uh, you know so we have patients in, our, in all the ICUs that have been on the ventilator for up to three weeks now. And um, now, you know, nor- like you said, normally these patients would have been tricked and pegged and off to a vent facility already. I think we all agree that this is not normal ARDS. These patients aren't normal, and some of them still have uh, their inflammatory markers pretty high up, and they're still having fevers even a couple of weeks in. We're debating on whether or not the risk of PERC versus open uh, should we ever trach cholera them? What happens to the stoma if, like, when they're coughing and the and the gases from these lungs go out around the stoma? And w- even after we trach them, where do we put these patients? Uh, is is there anywhere better than our current unit to put these patients? Because it's not like uh, LTACs and vent facilities are taking these patients. So we uh, we're we're stuck between a rock and a hard place, uh, and even just figuring out the providers. So we're lucky in that a couple of our surgeons are COVID converters. They're all positive now. So like me. Like like Hodge, so he's congratulations, not- Hodge. Thank you. Yes. <laughs> so he's You're not some kind of a super worker. Right. <laughs> yeah. They're trying to get me a cape. <laughs> so he's not afraid to run into these rooms, and uh, I, I don't know about anesthesia and the and the nursing staff who's going to be ballsy enough to walk into these rooms to be in these rooms during a trick either. But that's all up for debate right now. But yeah. one thing's for sure, as we said, minimum let's say three weeks on the vent. We're going to mandate uh, negative testing, at least two tests, 48 hours apart, whatever that's worth with the uh, mass random number generator. And there's got to be consensus on where we put these patients because it has to make them better as opposed to just being another thing that we do. My other, I, you know, I shared that, that photo with Dr. Chow, that ET tube that we just exchanged on a patient. It, may, it has colored my thinking a little bit more that maybe we do need to move a little faster on this because... If that patient had a tracheostomy with an inner cannula, they would not have had required all this that was in anesthesia, pulling out a tube and doing all that to recover them. So I'm leaning a little bit that we probably do need to do it a little bit sooner, but all the points that Dr. Chow made are, are perfect and need to be sorted first. Yeah, and, and one thing, you know, there obviously there's been a ton of discussion debate about the trachs, and it seems like 95% of it 
has been on the risk during the procedure, which if you do good technique, again, the risk should really be no more than, you know, a patient who's coughing. The risk we should be talking about is what's, what do you do with that patient now that they're trached? You know, because now you've got a, a directly open airway, especially, you know, your goal is to get them the trach mask or off the vent. And now you have a patient that's still COVID positive. They're spewing from a tracheostomy. So where are you going to put them? Do you have enough negative pressure rooms? You know, all the, provi- all the providers still need to be protected. And are you going to hurt a bunch of healthcare workers by doing these? And, you know, is an LTAC going to take them? So, so I think all of those are the issues we probably should be figuring out now, more so than the, you know, the risk of just doing the procedure. Have you all changed how you've done your spontaneous breathing trials because these people seem to be so PEEP dependent? Have you lengthened the time of the spontaneous breathing trial to see how they're going to do on lower PEEP? So that's the beauty of the APRV is that they're continuing to spontaneously breathe. And as we drop and stretch them, they're, they're kind of doing a lot of it on their own. And we're not doing daily spontaneous breathing trials in the normal, in the normal sense. Uh, we're just la- allowing them to breathe over the peep and then continuing to drop and stretch. And that's our weaning strategy. Nice and nice and slow. There, there was a couple of patients that we did regular spontaneous breathing trials. They de recruited like crazy and uh, they went up on higher settings when we put them back on a, a, a more mandatory vote mode. And we do do a, probably a two-day SVT at the very end, although it's not classic SVT, but it's on almost minimal settings before we would actually disconnect them from the ventilator and, and uh, take the tube out. Yeah, that's what I was going to ask. So what do you guys consider now an adequate period of SVT on minimal vent settings before you'll say, okay, they're okay to excavate? 48 hours. Yeah, wow. I'd say 24 to 48 hours because their lungs just aren't normal gone are the days where you do it for half an hour and just pull the tube and that, that's it. Like, and we're like Hodge said, we're putting all these patients on BiPAP even afterwards. And uh, they've, they've looked hairy on BiPAP. They don't look perfect. And you're always and in the back of my mind, I'm always wondering whether or not this patient's going to get retubed, but they just need time. I think w- the lessons I'm learning is that these patients just need time. They just need a lot, lot time. Carrie, any more questions from the respiratory standpoint? No, I'm good with respiratory. Thank you. All right. All right. So we'll move on to uh, cardiovascular. What types of cardiovascular manifestations have you all been seeing in these patients? The dreaded complication or dread, dreaded uh, manifestation is the myocarditis. Uh, those are the patients that have the troponins, the ST changes, very poor ejection fraction. And those patients have done extremely poorly and have actually, most of them have died fairly quickly. Fortunately, we have not seen many of those, but those have been the worst case scenario. We do see generally some sinus tachycardia, probably a little bit more atrial fibrillation than, than you would expect, but probably it's due to the hypoxia. And those seem to be easily managed. We do have some degree of hypotension, especially if we were in the, uh, using too much of our sedatives and sedative drips, but that has gotten better. And uh, as far as initial management, basically all these patients, once they get come to us in our ICU, they get lined up uh, a central line and an arterial line. We do the central line just because trying to keep all the medications outside, the pumps outside the, the patient's room to make it easier for the nurses and less exposure for the, for the staff. So that being done, so they, with the central line, at least it's safer and easier to manage that. And then they all get an arterial line for all their blood draws and blood gases and whatnot. If uh, you do have a patient that's hypotensive, are you still trying to run them dry in a typical manner and go to pressors sooner like you would with ADRS? Or are you a little more liberal with the fluids? I feel like we're getting stuck between a rock and a hard place because 
like for our, our medical ICU, for example, they've been running these patients bone dry and pretty much all of them are on, on dialysis now. Uh, so we've taken from that that maybe we're running them too dry and, and trying to save their lungs at the risk of everything else. So uh, we're tending to be less aggressive with the diuretics, just aiming for neutral balances as best we can. Probably end up giving more volume than, than perhaps most trying to save them from, the, from going into renal failure. Because once they go into renal failure, uh, these patients just don't do well. We haven't had a good success rate from that. Is there any difference in the pressors that you're reaching for? No, we're just pretty standard pressors. Uh, we, we like our epi if they got the touch of the myocarditis, uh, but pretty much levovaso as usual, and it seems to be working. Anything else, Matt, from you? I, I really want to highlight the point they made, which, which really gets into organization and planning of your ICU. The having the pumps outside of the room is just critical. So one, the nurses don't have to keep donning and doffing to run in and out every time the stupid thing starts beeping, because you know none of us doctors know how the hell to turn that alarm off. <laughs> True. <laughs> but, but, but the other thing is, and, and I've heard this from many ICUs, that they've had the experience of a drip, a presser drip runs out, and you know now it's take, it takes 10 minutes for the nurse to get a, another bag to don their PPE and get in there, and the patient is coding. So having that drip outside the room where you don't have to do that is critical. And now some places are trying to get the vent controls outside of the room if you have the right ventilator with the controls detached. And then the other thing you mentioned is do, do the procedures they need in one shot and up front. Don't do a central line and then later say, oh, we think they need an A line. And then later, oh, you know, they need an OG. Is Just do that all up front with either your ICU team or some places now have, have line teams and they go and do that all in one shot. So it's one exposure for the personnel. And then any right heart failure in these patients? We haven't seen too much of that. Like we're doing a lot of bedside ultrasounds and uh, mainly it's been a left side pump failure as opposed to right. And then as far as GI, any are your patients symptomatic there too? I know some COVID patients are actually presenting with GI symptoms. Have you been seeing this in your ICU patients? I think it's the minority of patients have the diarrhea uh, we actually saw the, the opposite problem, probably related to our sedative strategies at the beginning, where they were getting these horrible ileuses. We started weaning down all the sedation pretty early on, and that's kind of resolved that. And Matt taught us how to blow everybody's bowels out with lots of latulose, so we've been doing a, <laughs> we've been a lot more of that, and now the nurses hate us. So. <clears throat> but not so much of the manifestations of COVID. And, and what about tube feeding and their tolerance and, and proning and tube feeding? Right. Tube feeding has been less of an issue with the reduction in sedatives. We're holding tube feeds two hours before prone and then starting them right away after they get proned. None of the nurses really felt comfortable proning and and feeding at the same time. But these guys all get behind on their nutrition, it seems like. Uh, We haven't pulled anything like TPN or PPN uh, yet, but they're all edematous. They're all albumins or in the one, two range. Uh, I think we could do a little bit better on the nutrition piece. We are also seeing a high incidence of diabetes patients coming in in DKA when they present. And so that's another thing that's been a challenge. Uh, those patients are very acidotic and, and more of a challenge. And again, the nursing part of it also is an issue because you're putting them on insulin drips. Yet you don't want to be finger sticking them every hour. That's, a, that's a, another challenge for the staff. So there's another thing that we've been balancing and man, uh, managing. All right. We'll move on to GU. We talked a little bit about 
especially you said in the medical ICU, these patients requiring CRT. Are you finding that your patients, if you're putting them on CRT, I've been reading about patients who are frequently clotting the circuit, and I'm wondering if you're seeing this as well. We are not, but I guess I'll touch on our heme strategy. So we've been very aggressive, fully anticoagulating our patients, uh, any of our patients with an elevated D-dimer, we have been anticoagulating those patients fully so that with that, we have not seen the thrombosis. But the patients that were not anticoagulated, we did see a lot of thrombosis, catheters as, and filters clotting. Since they go together, are you relying on TEG or Rotem uh, in addition to D-dimer to determine who's hypercoagulable? Uh, unfortunately, we don't have TEG available here yet. Uh, to be too Matt honest, didn't bring it? Match. <laughs> he lost his luggage, I guess. But the uh, the thing that, in my mind, is most related to who's going to go on dialysis and not is how inflamed they are. I guess is that their inflammatory markers are all through the roof. Their D dimers are high. Their CRPs are through the roof. Uh, their LDHs are elevated. Their procalcitonin is through the roof. The ferritin. All these uh, COVID labs that we've been sending. The ones that end up on dialysis are coming in with a touch of AKI. They got 104 fever and attacking away at 140. Uh, and it almost seems like nothing you do fluid-wise, like we're, we're fluid challenging these patients like we normally would. Uh, nothing seems to bring them back from that AKI, uh, no amount of preloading. So probably about 30%, I would say, are going on to CRT or some sort of dialysis by our strategy. And I think in the units where they're being more aggressive with their diuresis, it's, it's probably even higher than that. Yeah. And I'm not sure if it's related to the thrombosis and they're maybe having some renal vascular thrombosis as well that's causing the renal failure or adding to the renal failure. Um, we're not sure. Are you yeah. seeing a, a component of rhabdo causing some AKI? No. No, their CKs aren't too bad, like maybe low hundreds if that. And we, we certainly shying away from the Vancos and other nephrotoxic agents. And when we send the renal lights, it's usually a, an intrinsic fena, not necessarily pre-renal uh, in the initial urine lights that we're sending. Yeah, that, that's one thing that's really impressed me since I came here was just how, how high the incidence of significant AKI is in these patients. And, and when you get to talk to the patients that are requiring, you know, really high vent support, it seems like it's almost universal among them. So when, when their lungs are really sick, their kidneys are really sick. In fact, I don't even, do, do we have anybody who we're proning that doesn't have AKI? Maybe one, one maybe, one, maybe <laughs> one. two. Yeah. And we've only had one patient who peaked his creatinine about two, two and a half that didn't progress to need, need for dialysis. So this... I, I favor this thrombosis idea that's probably they're clotting off their kidneys somehow, and that's just part of the manifestation of the viremia. Are you clearly seeing an increased mortality in these patients who are requiring CRRT? Absolutely. It's almost a death sentence. Uh, we've gotten better, but uh, those that are on dialysis, I don't think any of the ones uh, that we extubated, none of them require dialysis. With this global hypercoagulable state, are you doing any screening DVTs or CTAs of the chest to look for PEs, or, or just as soon as their D-dimers start to get to a threshold level, do you just empirically anticoagulate them? We're just empirically anticoagulating them. Uh, we're not pursuing it further with DVT studies or anything else. Yeah, and, and they're using a D-dimer cutoff of 5,000. 
to start therapeutic anticoagulation, right? That's correct. In some places, our, uh, one of the hospitals very close to us is using 1,000. Another hospital is using 3,000. We're not sure what the exact number needs to be. We've chosen 5,000. So we'll move now to ID. And so if this test, this COVID test, is actually a random number generator, I'm wondering, are you all treating the known positives and the presumed positives in the same way as far as what medications you're using? We are. We are doing that for as far as the medications. But when it gets down to the trial drugs, especially the anti-interleukin-6 drugs and the uh, antiviral drugs, remdesivir, you need to have tested positive to be put into one of those studies. So then it becomes relevant. But for the plaquenil zithromax combination that we were using for most of our patients up front, it did not require a positive test. Are you all using um, vitamin C or steroids? Uh, we're doing high-dose vitamin C. We're doing vitamin D. We're doing uh, zinc. Some units are doing thiamine and folate and multivitamins. Uh, the steroids, we're trying to find some sort of consensus on steroids. I think uh, like the medical ICU is using it on everybody, which I think is overly aggressive. Uh, we tend to use it more if they have other reasons to be on steroids, like COPD, high pressure requirements, but also for just for the pure ARDS, we're using it once we start proning them pretty much, and they're that bad, that far gone as far as their lungs are concerned. And is your infectious disease doctors involved in the care of all these patients or just some of them? Yeah, remarkably, they have been involved with almost the care of all of them. They are really, it's, I don't know how they're doing it, but they are really trying to see all of these patients COVID positive and rule out COVID and give us some guidance, which has been fantastic. And uh, it, maybe, I know they're, they're doing a lot of management of the outpatient COVID positives, right? Yes, they are. And, and I don't know how they're doing it, but they are, they, it's nonstop. And a lot of healthcare providers are also been getting sick and they're trying to help with that as well. And it must be very challenging for that department. Have you all utilized convalescent plasma in any of your patients? I'm saving mine up. <laughs> yeah, it's going to be worth gold, you know? I have first dibs on Hodge's plasma. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, we have not yet. The uh, New York Blood Center just started collecting uh, convalescent plasma, so we may have it available soon. Some of our sister institutions nearby, not in our, in our actual group, do have it available uh, in Mount Sinai and a couple of other places. Uh, we expect to hopefully have it here soon. So I usually end my rounds with a discussion of code status, and so I'd like to just talk about that a little bit. I'm curious if you all are routinely discussing code status with families, especially of these families of patients who are getting intubated, and how that discussion is going and how you're counseling them. It's been challenging, obviously, with the patient, with the families not being allowed to come to the hospital. It's extremely difficult having these conversations on the phone uh, and trying to take care of all these sick patients. On the patients that are not doing well or going in the wrong direction, we do spend trying to spend more time with the family and really discuss goals of care and possibility of even no escalation of care or withdrawal of support. It's very, very challenging. It's very hard for them, especially by phone and not even be able to see their loved ones. It's kind of what we're doing. I don't know, Betty, if you have any comment. The, the, the no visitors policy that we instituted fairly early on was such a game changer having these discussions over the phone is, is just heartbreaking. Every single conversation I have with them, they, they, they just want to do the iPad and FaceTime thing and see their loved ones. 
because uh, they just don't understand. They haven't seen their family, loved ones in, in weeks. Um, so we are having pretty robust discussions by phone, which is obviously not ideal. Uh, we're pretty aggressive about putting, making patients at least DNR, if not capping treatments. And uh, we, we've withdrawn care on a couple of patients that were, that were way too far gone. And palliative care, unfortunately, they're, they're all over the, they're, they're just too busy to come help us. So we're, it's mainly intensive is doing these conversations. Yeah, and, and I'd say it's, it's really hard to have that discussion with somebody who hasn't been allowed to come and actually see the patient. And, and a lot of times the, the, these guys and the residents have been fantastic and the residents are doing a lot of these discussions. Uh, they'll, they'll get the family on by FaceTime or by Zoom you know, and actually let them see their loved one, which, which often helps a lot so they can get a good mental picture of what's going on. But, but the, and we've had a couple where we've, we've allowed a family member to come in and see the patient and then they really have a grasp of what's going on. But when they don't see the patient, it, it's really hard to have those discussions and, and for them to try and make any kind of decision. Yeah, I've been touched by the amount of trust that we are asking these family members to have in us, even for our non-COVID patients has just been um, so overwhelming to me. I mean, we're really just saying, trust us. Yep. And, and the other issue I think that brings up is, you know, what do you, how do you handle the patient who's coding, who's known COVID positive? And maybe, maybe you guys can comment on that. I've seen everything from we're not doing any codes on them to, you know, all the techniques to protect the team. Yeah, we have to. We are making sure that the providers are protected because obviously that would be the worst thing is not only this patient to succumb, but for a provider also to get sick from this. So there is a full doff and don uh, before going into the patient that is coding. And the length of the code is probably, if it looks like they have no chance of survival, is not, is not very long. What are you doing to screen your staff, whether they can come to work? whether they need to be tested for COVID or is at some point you just reach an agreement that you understand that hundred percent of you are, are going to be infected. Unfortunately, we're all at the whims of the politicians on that one. I heard there's a million avid tests that are just sitting in a lab somewhere. I wish we can all get antibody tested is what I want. It's supposed mm-hmm. to be coming in the next week or so. And I, I am hundred percent convinced I've been positive, probably as asymptomatic spreader at some point. Uh, and I did a, and the staff are allowed to get tested if they're taking care of COVID patients. And I came back negative last week, but I've been hanging out with Hodge the entire time. And I'm sure he gave it to me at some point. So <laughs> I'm just waiting for the antibody test to come out to prove it. <laughs> <laughs> and I think getting that antibody test online is critical for one screening your staff. And so there's a lot of people walking around who had COVID and they just don't realize it. And, you know, they're probably immune. Uh, and, and those people should be treated differently than somebody who has no immunity. The patients need to be tested because otherwise you, you have no good way of cohorting them. And, and again, the patient who is clearly not immune, those patients need to be protected from the, the COVID population that you have in-house. And and maybe these guys can comment on the horizontal transmission issues that we've been seeing. You know, interesting, we tried to keep one of our surgical intensive care units non-COVID for the patients that are not, that were known to be not, and no suspicion of COVID. Uh, and we've done that. It's about a 16 bed unit. And pretty much every day or every couple of days, one or two patients turn out to be COVID positive. <laughs> we pull those patients out to the other units. 
but I, I think pretty much the entire building right now is probably one big COVID. Well, I, that's all my questions. I so appreciate all of your time. Thank you so much. It was really useful. Thank you for having us. Thank you so much, guys. Yeah, yeah. thanks, Greg and Carrie. Great discussion. And that wraps up another edition of TraumaCast, brought to you by the East Online Education Committee of the Eastern Association for the Surgery of Trauma. You can check out all the great educational and career development resources available on the East website at www.east.org. And make sure you subscribe to the TraumaCast series so you don't miss any of our exciting upcoming programs and interviews. So if you're searching for cutting-edge science and research, professional education, network and building relationships, and career development, remember that all you need to do is look to the East.